preaching of the word this morning. And the first passage is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And the other passage will be John chapter 12, as we're continuing our series in John's gospel. John chapter 12, verses 36 through 50. That will be our passage this morning. And as is sometimes our our habit to do, um, let's stand together for the reading of God's word, if you can. Isaiah chapter 6. Verses 1 through 10. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And now John chapter 12, beginning in the last half of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. 
For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And this is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Now, gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now as... As we've heard your word, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Friends, I invite you to go ahead and have a seat. And uh, if anybody found my sermon notes, um, I'm going to look in the bag to see if they're in the bag somewhere. I don't need them. I think I got what we want to say today. Well, we are in John's Gospel, John chapter 12. We've uh, spent many months now, I think, what, nine months going through John's Gospel. And we are through the first 12 chapters. And in the first 12 chapters, we have seen, um, we have seen Jesus do a tremendous amount of works showing his signs demonstrating that he, in fact, is the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. And uh, it's interesting that this early in John's gospel, his public ministry kind of comes to a stop here. John chapter 13 through 17 is uh, private conversations with Jesus and his apostles on the last week before his crucifixion. As a matter of fact, we saw last week that, uh, or the last couple of weeks, that in chapter 12, Jesus is going to Jerusalem for Passover for the, um, for the last time. And this is only just a couple of days before his crucifixion. And so his public ministry is coming to a close here. And if you might remember what had happened as Jesus is entering in chapter 12, verse 12, a large crowd uh, that had heard about Jesus' miracles, including his miracle of raising Lazarus, uh, had heard that Jesus was actually coming from Bethany, where he was staying, and traveling uh, westward to Jerusalem to come into Jerusalem. And there was a crowd following him, and there were people running ahead, and they were announcing that, that this, this Jesus, the one who is coming. And they went out with palm branches to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they say, they claim he's the king of Israel. They're, they're picturing now that he is the Messiah, the conquering Messiah. Like the palm branches were used throughout Israel's history, especially in the, uh, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, of their victories militarily over foreign invaders. And that's what they thought Jesus was coming to do. 
And of course, Jesus comes riding humbly on a donkey in fulfilling of the passage of Scripture. So what we have now here at the very end of this passage, after Jesus has come in, we have kind of uh, John's comments here, a little bit of his commentary on what is happening. Jesus has presented himself to all of the people and the responses have been varied. And so here we have kind of another summary of the responses to Jesus. And so I'll give you three different types of followers. And in the first one, I'm using kind of followers here with scare quotes, followers, and you could follow along in your handout. Nobody found my sermon notes? All right. Pray for me. All right, here's the first one. False followers. John presents to us false followers. Notice this in verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Let me see if it's over here. It's in the box. Thanks, Jared. Did you hide that to be a hero there? <laughs> so John gives us these, uh, these three groups, and the first one are false followers. False followers. Why do I say false followers? Um, because it's, it seems to present them as, as unbelievers, and I guess you could say it that way. These are basically unbelievers. But uh, this is, in the context here, he has just had a large crowd of people who had just come to him celebrating that he was coming as the Messiah, as the deliverer, as the one who was going to conquer and eliminate the foreign invaders that were oppressing them and controlling them. Notice verse 37. It's actually one of the saddest verses in John's gospel. Uh, you've heard me say uh, the saddest verse, I think, in, in John's gospel is chapter 1, verses, um, verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the, think about that. He was in the world. He made the world. The world was made through Christ, and he took on human flesh and came to the world, and yet the world did not recognize him. The world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people, that's pretty emphatic there, his own people did not receive him. That's a sad verse. Verse 37 has that same level of sadness. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him. They had done so many signs. And that they still did not believe him. And here, I think, in the context is they didn't believe in who he truly was as Messiah. Couple of things to notice is that they rejected the works of God. Notice the, the miraculous proofs. He had done so many signs. We'd seen this all throughout John's gospel. The crowds were saying, Look at all of the signs that he has done. Is there is anybody who does these signs? How could they not be from God? The religious authorities were saying, We got a problem on our hands because he's doing all of these signs. And I would say, if you look at the last verse of John's gospel, 
that all of the signs that we have seen thus far, culminating in the most amazing one, which is the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead, I think all that we have seen thus far is only just a, a sampling. John ends this gospel with, now there were many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So we only have a sampling of them here, and they're amazing. And it, verse 37, he had done many of these signs, so much that if you wrote them all down, the whole world couldn't fill a library of them. So many, and yet they still did not believe. They reject the works of God and miraculous proofs. And let that be a reminder to us that when it comes to the fallen, sinful human heart, uh, evidences and logic and reason, as, as important as those are, are never enough. J.C. Ryle put it this way, we may learn secondly from these verses the desperate hardness of the human heart. It is written of our Lord's hearers at Jerusalem that though, they had, though he had done so many miracles before them, they believed not in him. We err greatly if we suppose that seeing wonderful miraculous signs will ever convert souls. Thousands live and die in this delusion. They fancy if they saw some miraculous sight or witnessed some supernatural exercise of divine grace, they would lay aside their doubts and at once become decided Christians. It is a total mistake. Nothing short of a new heart and a new nature implanted in us by the Holy Spirit will ever make us real disciples of Christ. Close quote from the manly Mr. Ryle. They rejected the works of God, the miraculous proofs and evidences. They saw them all. They heard them all, and they rejected them. So not only did they reject the works of God, they rejected the word of God, which is the revelation of God. And this is hinted at even at the very beginning of verse 38, where John writes, so that the word, their unbelief in verse 37 was so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? It's interesting that he quotes that verse. that comes from Isaiah 53, verse 1. And here, I think in the context, is, is Isaiah. We had read in our scripture reading about Isaiah's commissioning by the Lord. After he sees the, the glory of God in the, in, the tabern or in the temple, and he's undone, woe is me. And then he's a man of unclean lips, and he goes, well, I'll take care of that. And, you know. and then the voice says, who shall I send? And Isaiah's like, well, send me. And so he sends him out to go and give the message. And in Isaiah 53, he kind of gives a little line of lament there. Who's believed this? The number of people that have, should be hearing the word of the Lord should be great. And yet only a small number of remnants are really listening to what I'm saying. John quotes this verse here to say, Jesus and Isaiah are sharing a similar experience. What Jesus is experiencing is similar to what Isaiah experienced. Jesus performs these wonderful acts and he speaks these wonderful truths from God, and yet they don't believe. 
Jesus, so you hear, here you have both. You know, we talked about in our catechism question, general revelation, the works of God, and then special revelation, his word. You know, here they're rejecting the works of God and the word of God. You see the works of God rejected in the other half of that quote too. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is always a picture throughout the Old Testament of God's mighty, miraculous deliverance of his people. And they don't believe it. God's word or works would not dissuade them from their destructive path. It's not unlike today. It's interesting, by the way, before I continue with that thought, if we look at the Isaiah passage that he's quoting there. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. If you would like to turn to it, Isaiah chapter 53 is a very important passage in the Old Testament that foretells the work. And it's interesting that it is placed here right as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem to go and suffer on the cross. This quote is from Isaiah 51, or 53, verse 1. But it's, in the, that, it's basically in the middle of a passage here that is uh, Isaiah prophesying about the work of this anointed one, this servant of the Lord and what he is coming to do. Back up to verse 13. And keep in mind, this is written hundreds, centuries before Jesus. Where he says this, behold, my servant, okay, this is the, the Lord's servant, shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond, beyond human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Notice the language here speaking in past tense, but it's describing um, a future event as if it had happened. Surely, he continues, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, 
who considered that he was caught off out of the land of, li of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prop prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's a little hint here in John's gospel of what is about to come. He quotes the one, the one lament Isaiah has in the middle of this passage, who has believed this message from us. And in the middle of that, you have all of this description of the life of Jesus Christ and the cross. And notice the total substitutionary action that is happening here. The Lord, it's our iniquity, the Lord lays on him. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was pierced for our transgressions. It's by his wounds that we are healed. This is a prophecy that clearly refers to Christ. As a matter of fact, the New Testament writers saw this. And this is what Jesus is about ready to experience. God had revealed himself in amazing acts and through his word, and he was about to do an even greater act than all of them. And yet, even in the midst of this, the Jews in Jerusalem just refused to believe. That's why they are false followers, excited when he comes through the gate, but they never really believed in him. Now, a couple of reasons, a couple of causes behind this. I guess we could ask why. Why, despite God's works and God's word, did they disbelieve? It's a big question. And there's really two reasons or two causes, we could say. There's, there's always two causes at play here. The first one is that the people whose eyes are blinded and whose hearts are, uh, are hardened will make their own choice to reject the message. And they will do so for their own interests and for their own reasons. Notice Back to chapter 11, verses 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? This, this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Remember, remember that passage in Caiaphas says, hey, it'd be better for this one guy to suffer than for the whole nation to suffer. So they, they have their reasons. They could be selfish reasons. We could say this. Uh, they do so because of their sin nature. As J.C. Ryle alluded to in that quote. John chapter 3 speaks of the absolute necessity, remember, of being born again or being born from above. So they reject it for their own selfish reasons. They're because of their sin nature. You could even say that they reject it... Um, 
you to, to recognize that some of the rejection that takes place happens because of the work of Satan in this regard. Second Corinthians chapter three, the apostle Paul speaks about the veil that is still even over the Jews eyes in his day as he's going to synagogues. Remember, Paul would go from synagogue to synagogue and he would try to show them from from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And he says this, but their minds are hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it, it is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, Paul says, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And he goes on a little bit later to say that the work of Satan involved in this. In chapter 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 and 6. And in their case, he says, the God of this world, okay, the reference to Satan or the devil, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He says it again in a different way in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness has shown into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So a couple of reasons, their reasons. But there's another explanation. And the other explanation is this, is that there's an ultimate reason. And this is seen in the second citation given in John chapter 12. So he had just said that they did not believe in verse 37. And then in verse 38, he says, so that the word of the prophet would be fulfilled. Okay, so the, the Lord knows about their rejection. He knows about their unbelief. And then notice what it says in verses 39. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Whoa, think about, wait a second here. I could see how they've hardened their hearts and they've blinded their own eyes. But there's an element here where the Lord is saying, and, and I'm doing it too. I'm blinding their hearts and I'm uh, blinding their eyes and hardening their hearts. Notice that that comes uh, in that commissioning passage from Isaiah chapter 6. And keep in mind, notice what it says in verse 41. Isaiah said these things. He's saying what Isaiah wrote there in the previous verse, which is Isaiah chapter 6. He said he, he said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. That's a pretty amazing statement right there. John is saying that that amazing experience that Isaiah had of seeing the glory of the Lord and the seraphim saying, holy, holy, holy. He says that was actually Christ pre-incarnate before he becomes Jesus. That's what John hints at there. That, that, was, that was a pre-incarnate Jesus that you saw there. More on that later. But Isaiah gets commissioned and Isaiah's message would be rejected by many. And that's why he says this. And, but notice the ultimate reason that's given here. The ultimate reason for people's rejection of Christ's word in his works by God, is by God's own actions of blinding the spiritual eyes and hardening their hearts. 
This is a passage that Jesus cites when asked, why do you speak in parables? And he goes, well, I speak in parables. Why? Because they're clever illustrations that make things really clear and use illustrations for people to understand. No. He says, I speak in parables to make it harder to understand that really the ones that, that, uh, with, that have been given the spiritual insight can see and understand. Matthew 13. This is why I speak in parables, because seeing they do not see. And hearing, they do not hear. They do not understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed uh, see, but never perceive. So there's a sense in which their eyes are blinded from their own idolatry. Their heart is hardened from the fall in their sin nature. And then God as well is handing them over into their blindness and hardness of heart. You see this in a couple of places, a couple of examples throughout the scripture. I think of uh, Pharaoh. Many times as Moses is going and you have uh, the, the ten plagues that come upon Egypt. And it says, and Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then it also says, and that the Lord hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. But it also says that the Lord hardened his heart. And ultimately... The Lord says, and I have hardened your heart and I've done so for a purpose that I might be glorified in what's going to happen to you. Similarly, Paul says in Romans chapter one, when he's reflecting on the widespread sin and unrighteousness in the world and that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. He says this of, of those who reject him. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Foolish hearts were, were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And then he says this refrain, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart. Because they exchanged the truth of God for life. Notice verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. And verse 28, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. So why would God do this? Paul elsewhere in Romans says, you know, there's a, there's a hardening that comes upon on Israel. And... The side effect from that hardening is that the Gentiles, the nations of the world, would come to Christ. Paul in Romans 11 says it's through Israel's trespass, the sin of unbelief, salvation has now come to the Gentiles. And then he adds this, he goes, 